0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If you would, um, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time together uh, gathered as the body. We thank you for who you are and uh, how you have made each of us. How are you... Are with us, how you love us, how you bless us, you protect us. We thank you, Father. We have so much to be thankful for as your people. Your mercies are never ending. And we thank you now for this time that we are here, that we may have been worshiping, our worship has been pleasing to you, and we pray that the rest of our worship this afternoon and this morning will be pleasing to you. Um, Father, as we now open our words, our word to study and to hear your word preached, we, we Pray, Father, that you would grant us the influence of the Holy Spirit as we take the Spirit's sword and seek to apply it to this congregation. And um, our congregation is made up of individuals who, who need a direct word from you. So, Lord, please come and talk to us. And because it is you talking through your word, we pray you would rivet our attention to it and that nothing would distract us from it. Speak, O Lord. We are filled with expectancy because. In your word, you do speak. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. continue our study through this brief epistle written by the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, James. And we uh, pick up today in chapter 4. We'll begin looking at this section, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This morning we'll just uh, sort of clip the uh, the first edge of that, but I'm going to read the entire piece just to get our minds thinking about the context this morning James writes it would help if I was in James and not Hebrews I've been out to sea for a month and I can't find James um, alright James chapter 4 much better what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you Is enmity with God Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world Makes himself an enemy of God Or do you suppose It's to no purpose that the scripture says He yearns jealously Over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us But he gives more grace Therefore it says God opposes the proud But gives grace to the humble Submit yourselves therefore to God Resist the devil And he'll flee from you Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's pray together. God, You've told us Your Word is a... It's like a two-edged sword. It, it cuts down to the very heart of who we are as human beings. And with it, you per- perform surgery on our souls. And yet, we are very adept, oh God, at putting up our defenses. We have multiple strategies for evading your word. We have multiple strategies for avoiding your word. We have multiple strategies for deflecting the sword of the Spirit when it comes our way. And so we pray now, O God, that you would allow us to put down our defenses and to open ourselves up to the surgery you would seek to perform in us. Draw away from our minds any thoughts of who else the text applies to this morning may each one of us look intently into the mirror as James has told us. To see ourselves in light of your word. And allow you to perform your surgery in us. We need it this morning, oh God. And we pray for it by the power of your spirit. Amen. John and Jill, the names are changed for privacy's sake, sat in the office. John and Jill had been married for 15 years. They had two children. Had been through lots of ups and downs in their life and in their marriage, but they sat in the office on this particular day in the midst of an all-out war. You see, Jill had found John's phone. And as she began to look upon his phone and text messages and other things, she began to discover one of the worst discoveries any wife could ever make, that John had been pursuing another lover, that he had been engaged in an affair, that he had violated their marriage covenant with someone else. Jill had confronted John on this particular matter, and as you can imagine, the confrontation was unpleasant. John, like most of us sinners, was not readily willing and able to confess his sin and repent, and so he put up his defenses. And the conflict escalated and escalated and escalated until they're sitting in an office in the midst of an all-out war. And while John makes his excuses for why and his explanations for why and does what we all do, blames all sorts of other people and things and circumstances, Jill's firm and direct response is very clear. John, you can't have it both ways. You can't love me and love her. You can't enjoy the benefits and the security of the covenant of marriage and home and family and yet snuggle up to another lover whenever you please. It can't be like that, John. You can't have it both ways. You have to choose where your loyalty lies. That scenario that John and Jill played out has played out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the lives of people all over the place. Perhaps you know something of that experience. Maybe that kind of thing has touched into your life and in vivid color you could tell that story should you choose to do so. But there's a war that's broken out. And somebody has to get to the bottom of it. What started this whole thing? What created this conflict that's now erupted into a war? Whose fault is it? Where does the fault lie? How do we diagnose what's wrong and how do we then fix what's wrong? In order to fix what's wrong, you have to diagnose it correctly at the outset. You get the wrong diagnosis, you get the wrong cure, and nothing gets fixed. So somebody has to figure out. Where all this conflict began? Where the fault lies? What is its source? What is its root so that it can be yanked up and the marriage healed? Well, John and Jill's story is one kind of conflict, one kind of a war. But really, the world around us is filled with conflicts and wars. And James introduces us in verse 1 here to this issue of conflict by simply asking a very simple question, which is the primary question that leads us right into the text this morning, and it's this. He asks the question, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It seems like a very simple question at the outset, doesn't it? What causes fights? What causes quarrels? What causes wars? The recognition underneath the question is that conflict is a reality that we all are very familiar with and very aware of. That when we look around the world, we see conflict almost on every horizon. We're no strangers to conflict, even in the United States of America, where it doesn't necessarily, in physical threat to life sort of ways, touch our lives every day, like it does in other places. We look on the political spectrum and we see nothing but conflict. Right? There's always conflict The whole political world is set up around conflict And when there's none that naturally comes somebody's going to generate some right Leak a media story It's full of lies to create a controversy and a conflict Because it's in the midst of the conflict that we can capitalize and advance our agenda So Democrats love to fight against Republicans and Republicans love to fight against Democrats and independents don't know who they're fighting But they're fighting somebody somewhere But it's all built around conflict We're all familiar with military conflict our military is in conflict All around the globe, right this very minute If you're not in the military If if you don't have friends or family or relatives Who serve and are involved in that You you may allow that to slip your mind If you don't pay attention to the TV or to the news But in the reality There's military conflict going on all around us Those who are in the military are very keenly aware of that I was on a military vessel For the whole month of February And that vessel is designed That United States Navy destroyer Is designed for one thing It's designed for conflict, for war we, we passed by a carnival cruise ship one day, and it was very clear that there was a very real distinction between the two vessels. Right? There's always somebody on a destroyer on the bridge watch on either side, and they're usually someone of low rank, and they have nothing to do but stare at the water for six hours. So I always had a captive audience. I always would go there if I couldn't find someone else to talk to. And this particular day, this is a total aside, I went out and spoke to this, this young guy that was out there on watch, and I said, you see that ship over there? And I said, those people paid a thousand bucks to float on this water and to look at these beautiful stars. The Navy is paying you." To do that What a lucky guy you are He smiled He said I never thought of it that way I didn't elaborate on the other obvious differences I just thought we'd leave it right there But that vessel is designed for one thing It's a vessel of war It's got weapons designed to do harm And it's designed to do harm if necessary But to deter harm When not in use Military conflict is real We understand social conflict. If you're on uh, Facebook or any other sort of social media, you know social conflict, right? All you have to do is post something. There's ten people who tell you how stupid and wrong you are and argue with you about it. There's criminal conflict. You look around and you see the headlines and there's always somebody that's doing something. It's against the law that violates and hurts and harms other people Conflict is all around us And then underneath all of that is just a personal conflict that we deal with on a regular basis Conflict between husband and wife Conflict between parents and children uh, Conflict between co-workers who work in the same space Conflict between families and relatives Conflict on the highway when that person cuts you off And gets in the lane And doesn't allow you to go where you want to go At the speed you want to go Conflict in the grocery store when that person in front of you is in the express lane And they have 25 items instead of 10 Like they're supposed to And you want to throw an onion at them I'm sorry, maybe that's just me We're all familiar with conflict We've come to expect it as a part of life all around us But you see, we're Christians, we're different Right? Right? Christ resides in us. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. We have repented of our sin and entrusted ourselves to Christ. He has indwelt us with His Holy Spirit. And He has transformed us from being people who are hostile and angry and at war to being people who are peacemakers. Right? And all of us experience unending peace every day of our lives. Right? And when we gather into communities called churches They also become then bastions of peace Where no one ever disagrees Where there's never any conflict Where people like exactly the same kind of music And the same color carpets Right? Where people like exactly the same length of a sermon This is how it works in the church Well, you laugh because you know that's ludicrous Right? It's ludicrous Because if you've been around God's people for any length of time You understand that God's people are often actively involved in all sorts of conflict And God's church is often involved in all sorts of conflict Sometimes small and sometimes massive If you've been around the church for long, you've been in all of it and you've seen it all and James asks a question that matters. He says, what is it that causes all this? Where does it all come from? What causes fights and what causes quarrels? And he says something that matters to us. What, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the politicians. He's not talking to the people in the media. He's not talking to the military. He's not talking to the, about the pagan in the grocery store that can't count his groceries. He's talking to the Christian church. He's talking to the people identified in James chapter 1, believers. He wants to know this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes you to be involved in fighting and quarreling and conflict? Somebody needs to diagnose it because somebody needs to cure it because it's not what God has designed The terminology James uses here for wars and conflict, um, for quarrels and conflict in the ESV, is military terminology. The word quarrels, it means wars. It refers to literally battle with weapons, armed conflict. The second one that's translated by the ESV, fights, or, yeah, fights, is a word that means fighting but without weapons, personal conflict. Another way of seeing these two words together is that the one word describes open war on the big, big spectrum and the other involves they small skirmishes. And so what he's saying to these believers is, listen, what is it that causes this outright war that's going on among you and what is it that causes all the little skirmishes that make up the war? Apparently the people to whom he was writing were well acquainted with this problem because James was well acquainted with it. And he was well acquainted with the propensity of believers to be involved in both interpersonal skirmishes and outright wars. And James, like a doctor, wants to come in and he wants to diagnose the real problem. And he wants to put it up in front of them so they can see it. And then he's going to call them to change and repentance. Now, at first glance, because they're in your Bible there's a break between chapter 3 and chapter 4, we might think that, well, James has changed his, his course here a bit. He's corrected or, or shifted course from chapter 3 to chapter 2, and he's on to something new. But, as you and I know, uh, these, these chapter markings were added in later, well after James wrote this, uh, this, this epistle, and they're, they're there simply to help us uh, with finding our way around and memorizing things. The reality is the beginning of chapter 4 is an actual continuation of the end of chapter 3. The same train of thought that James is on at the end of 3, he's launching into in chapter 1. At the end of 3, the last thing James talks about is there's, there's this wisdom that comes from the world and there's a different kind of wisdom that comes from God. When we follow the wisdom of the world, it leads to all sorts of, of, of evil and darkness and disorder among us. And then he says, but if we're, if we're following and we're being driven by the wisdom that comes from God, then the last thing he says is the result of that will be a harvest of righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. We follow the wisdom that comes from God, we become peacemakers who live righteously. When we follow the wisdom of the world, we become people who, are, who live disorderly lives, who are involved in disorder. And so when we move into chapter 4, it says, though James is saying... Speaking of disorder What's causing all the disorder among you? Speaking of fights and quarrels and and things that are not peaceful what in the world's going on among you And so as James seeks to expose the root of this church's conflict He lays out for us a paradigm for understanding all conflict He lays out for us a diagnosis that applies in every sense where conflict arises. And he lays out for us the very sources of the conflict, and they are so exceedingly simple to understand, yet they are painfully hard to identify in ourselves. We need the help of God's Spirit to do so. James lays out for us what I believe are three roots for all conflict. Three roots that are underneath when we dig below the surface of the conflict when we dig below the words and we dig Below the emotions that are on the surface and we start drilling down and we start asking the question. Now what caused all this? What started all this? We get to some roots that are always there and the first one James gives us In this first part of chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 he says this what causes quarrels And what causes fights among you? And then he gives us root number one. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Root number one to all conflict. Sinful desires within us. Every time I'm involved in conflict And I stop and ask the question what caused this To always go down and find a root of some sinful desire Inside of my heart That's driving me to do what it is that I'm doing Root number one sinful desires within us Let me show you a couple of other translations The New Living Translation the CEV the Contemporary English Version I'm kind of get at this in a little more a little more uh, sort of contemporary language What causes the quarrels and fights among you don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Route number one of all conflict evil desires at war inside of me When I'm on the outside fighting with somebody else you can bet That there's some sort of an evil desire That's at war inside of me. I'm at war with somebody else because there's a war that's already raging in me. That's what James says is going on here. He says, you've got a problem. And it's an inside job. It's passions. It's desires. It's pleasures that are at war within you. The word translated passions or desires or pleasures, depending on your translation, is the word from which we get, it's the word hedon, from which we get the word hedonism, which is just sort of the wanton consumption of all that we desire without any limits. It's a word that describes sort of a pleasure motivated drive within us that's battling to be satisfied. On the inside, there's something that I want and I'm not getting it. I want something and it's not happening. So I'm fighting. Something that's wrong inside of me. The problem when I'm at war with somebody or I'm involved in some conflict is not a problem outside of me. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's not the circumstances. It's not this or that or the other thing. The problem always comes back to What's going on on the inside of me? We live in a blame culture. We talked about this back in the earlier chapters of James when James mentioned this same issue. That we live in a culture that just thrives on blame. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. Everything is somebody else's fault. In all the areas of conflict that I mentioned earlier in the introduction Nobody wants to take responsibility The, the Republicans, it's all the Democrats' fault The Democrats, it's all the Republicans' fault We've done nothing wrong we're, we're saints Everybody involved in the conflict wants to blame somebody else for the problem Well, if they hadn't done this Then I wouldn't have this Well, if she hadn't said that Well, if they had just done what they were supposed to do Well, if, if, if I had gotten what I was looking for Then We learn it as kids. We learn to say, I didn't do it, it's not my fault. When we're really, really little. Sometimes we even sort of spin all the way down to saying, you know what, at the end of the day, it's God's fault. God could have worked things out differently, but he didn't. So now I'm mad, and I'm fighting. The problem, James says, is I've got, I've got a war going on inside of me. There's a raging battle inside of me between godly desires and ungodly desires. On the one hand, I want to honor God. On the one hand, I want to do what's right. On the other hand, there are all sorts of, of ungodly passions that reside within me that drive me to desire things that don't belong to me. And so there's a war that's raging. In chapter 1, verse 14, in the context of temptation, James brought this up earlier. He said, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. So James, in the context of temptation, says, Look, temptation isn't an outside job either. Temptation is an inside job also. That when you give in to temptation, it's not somebody else's problem, it's your problem. There's something wrong inside of you, it's your desires that have run amok. There's no one to blame, and he comes back around in chapter four here to this same very same issue. Listen, when there's conflict, when I'm involved in conflict, when I'm arguing and fighting and bickering with somebody else, whether it be some small little skirmish, or whether it be some all-out war, at the end of the day, when I ask the question, "What caused that?", I have to look in the mirror, and James says, root number one of is it? There's a war going on inside of me. There's sinful desires. That are going unchecked there are really two categories of sinful desires that I think James has in mind One is just the sinful desires that that sort of emerge when we want things that are ungodly Sinful desires that are just outright ungodly things that we want that God has already said are forbidden Lust that's out of control vengeance because somebody has done something some sort of self-vindication or greed. All of those are sort of sinful desires that often captivate our heart and drive us into battle. Sort of sinful desires. Sometimes when we root back, we we uncover those things. But there are also good or, or otherwise neutral desires that just overflow the banks. Desires that on the surface or at the bottom are not really bad desires But they become bad when they overflow the boundaries in which they were designed to run and they become all-consuming to us And they drive us to do things To sin in order to satisfy them Things like food There's nothing wrong with food. God's built us with a desire to enjoy food But there are ways in which we can That that drive or that desire can drive us towards sin. There's nothing wrong with desiring intimacy with your spouse. It's part of how God has designed us and how God has designed marriage. But that drive, that natural desire, can drive all sorts of behaviors in the midst of conflict because it overflows its bank. There's nothing wrong with a desire for a new car or a desire for a computer or a desire for a new outfit but a desire to have things can quickly overflow into a materialism and a material drive that drives us to sin and disobey God and and go into battle with other people. There's nothing wrong with wanting respectful children, but a desire for a respectful child can cause us to sin in all sorts of ways when it overflows the banks. The bottom line of all this is this. When I'm involved in large or small conflict, the odds are my sinful desires are the problem. At the end of the day, I want something and I'm not getting it. It's that simple. It's really, really that simple. I want something and I'm not getting it. And I want it so much that I'm willing to fight for it. And I'm even willing to dishonor God for it. One of my favorite writers from the biblical counseling world is a guy by the name of David Pallison David Pallison says this He says one of the joys of biblical ministry comes when you're able to turn on the lights in another person's dark room I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility and the accompanying fear self-pity hurt and self-righteousness Who really understood and reckoned with their own motives? James 4, 1-3 teaches that cravings underlie conflicts. I love that phrase. Why do you fight? It's not because my wife, my husband, blank. It's because of something about you. Couples who see what rules them, cravings for affection, attention, power, vindication, comfort, control, a hassle-free life, can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace. I love that phrase, cravings underlie conflicts. It's a great summary of what James is saying. Every conflict at the bottom of it, I want something, and I'm not getting it, and so I fight. James says, so you murder. He's using the word murder here metaphorically speaking to just really describe sort of a a, a bitter hatred but he could also, he could also literal uh, you know, understanding of that matters too. Every murder that actually takes place roots back to the same thing, right? Why does somebody kill somebody else? Because they want something, and that seems to them to be the way to get it. I, I want to rob your home, so I pull out a gun and I kill you in order to get what I want. There's a craving, there's a desire that's gone unmet, and I'm willing to fight even to kill in order to get what I want. But you and I know Jesus has said things like this in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said uh, of those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He argues that there's not a, a, a substantial difference between hatred and murder. At the end of the day, they're the same sort of a thing. Or in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the issue here, the way James is using it, is this word murder is just a hyperbole for bitter hatred. I want something so badly, and I'm not getting it, that I'm willing to fight, and I'm willing to quarrel, and I'm willing to, to sort of, in a even in a... Uh, a less than literal way, kill somebody if I have to to get what I want. I'll do whatever destruction I need to do to get my desire met. One author said it this way, a frustrated desire is a bomb that must be diffused. If not, when it explodes, it may destroy everything nearby. He adds on to it by saying this, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If it's not bad enough that what I want, I can't get. To add insult to injury into my life, one of you has what I want. That just makes it so much worse, right? It's not bad enough that my desire has gone unmet. It's, it's, it's worse because Steve has acquired the thing that I want. And so now I've got to take down Steve because I covet what he has. Steve got the recognition that I thought I deserved, that I wanted. And so now I need to go talk to John over there about what a right guy Steve is. You see? It's all because I desired what he had. I wanted something and I didn't get it. And to make it worse, he got it and I didn't. And so I gossiped. And so I, I, I do what I can to discredit Steve. And conflict erupts. Covet and you can't obtain. Ken Sandy has wrote a remarkable book called The Peacemaker. If you don't have it in your library, you should get it in your library. Uh, a wonderful book, the best resource I've ever seen on sort of walking through conflict and how to, um, how to be a peacemaker. And in it, he describes what he calls the downward spiral of conflict. And I think it's worth taking really the, sort of the remainder of our time this morning walking through because he, he just sort of elucidates what James is telling us here. Sandy says that, there, that, that our, our conflict sort of it begins with a desire and it takes a, a, a spiral downward. Let me just play this out the way Sandy lays it out for us. He says our conflicts always begin just where James says they begin, with a desire that's out of control. I want something and I don't get it. So it begins with a desire. I desire something And when my desire even if it's a legitimate desire goes unmet Then there's a problem in my little world, right? I want something and I haven't gotten it now there are legitimate desires that happened, like so, so let's just say something comes up in my home. There are legitimate desires that I might have and there may be a legitimate problem and we need to sit down and have a conversation, talk about this and see how two godly people can work it out. But what happens when the other party stops the discussion? What happens when the other party doesn't give me what I want? See, now we're at a crossroads, right? I have a decision to make. What am I going to do? I sat down with her and I talked to her. And we're not on the same page. And she's dug in on her side and I'm dug in on mine. And she's determined not to give me what it is that I desire. So now I'm at a crossroads. What do I do? The internal war starts to to sort of heat up now. I have a choice to make. What am I going to do? Am I going to trust God and seek fulfillment in Him like Psalm 73 tells me I ought to do? Am I going to turn to Him and seek Him and trust Him? Am I going to ask Him to help me to continue to grow regardless of what the other person does? Am I going to continue to love that person and pray for God's sanctifying work in their life like the Scriptures instruct me to do? Am I going to respond that way? Or am I going to allow the downward spiral to continue to to flow? Am I going to choose to dwell and stew on my disappointment and allow it to fester in my heart? Am I going to allow self-pity and bitterness to begin to take root and set in? And if I choose that route, then it removes me right down to step number two in this spiral of conflict. It moves from I desire to now I demand. See, I, I wanted something. It began with a desire that was unmet. And that desire is now unmet. And i am now determined not only do I want it, but I, either I need it or I deserve it. And so now I'm demanding it. It's the next step. I've determined that whatever it is that I want is something I must have to be happy or fulfilled. And the more I think I need it or the more that I want it, the more that I think that I deserve it, the more I begin to think I'm entitled to it. And now some, something is owed to me. And now I'm beginning to get convinced in my heart that, that I can't be happy without it and that I have to have whatever that thing is. It's moved in my heart from I wish I could have this to I must have this, and I will get this. Even if the initial desire was not by itself inherently wrong, it's now grown to something that controls my thoughts and my behaviors, and the Bible calls that an idol. That desire has now gone to a demand, and it's become an idol of my heart, and I'm willing to fight to gain it. It's not a problem that I want the wrong thing It's the problem now that I want it too much And it's driving and controlling my life And my thoughts and my behavior That desire has turned into a demand And that demand is going to be fulfilled Or else And here's the thing about Christian people like us We are really really good About hiding this stage Behind all sorts of spiritual veneers Right Right But what I want is not wrong because I can show you verses in the Bible where God says I I should have this. Let me give you an example. A mother might desire that her children be respectful and obedient to her, that they might be kind to each other, and that they might be very diligent in developing their gifts and talents. Any mothers have that desire? Do any mothers have that desire? Please nod. I know you're still awake and attached here. Of course, is there anything wrong with that desire? No. Mothers can back that desi- those desires up from Scripture, right? Those are the things God wants. And so, surely, there's nothing wrong with those. But what happens when the kids don't fulfill those goals? What happens when the kids don't live out those realities? when the kids that she desires to be respectful and obedient to her are disrespectful and disobedient. And what happens when that happens over and over a couple times? How does she respond? Well, she might feel frustrated or angry or resentful. Maybe. Probably. But it's in that moment that mom has to stop and ask, why is it that I'm feeling this way? Is it a righteous anger that that they're not living up to God's standards? Or is it really just a selfish anger that they're not giving me a smooth, comfortable, and convenient day that I really want? You see? You see how a good desire can quickly become an idol? In most cases in that scenario, it'll be some mixture of both. Of course, every mom wants her children to turn out to be obedient, to love God and obey and be respectful and do what's right. But there's another part of mom that really just wants a comfortable, convenient day without any problems. That's also a desire that resides there. And we're going to see, by the way mom responds, which one is ruling the heart. If the reality of her moment is that she really does desire that they be godly and obedient and be respectful because that honors the Lord, then she's going to respond to them the way the Lord would respond to them. Like Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate, He's gracious, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in love. So if that's her concern for her children, she's going to be that way in regards to them. Or like Galatians 6 1, if someone's caught in a sin, you're spiritual, you should restore them gently. If mom is driven by the desire for godliness in her children, she's going to respond as God responds when we disobey. But, but, if what is really driving her day is a desire for a comfort and convenience and a day without problems, then she's going to respond a different way. She's going to lash out with harsh words. She's going to say unkind things, perhaps. Perhaps. She's going to display for them sort of a smoldering anger. Maybe an overly unnecessarily harsh discipline. She's going to feel inside of her heart some sort of bitterness or resentment that her desires have now been frustrated for the day. And there may even be, after the fact, sort of a lingering coolness toward them, right? Just sort of a, a lingering reminder throughout the rest of the day. You better not do that again. Don't cross me again. Don't mess up my day again. Don't frustrate my desires again. If that second response is the response, then here's the reality. Here's the reality. A good desire has now become a demand, a sinful demand that's now become an idol, and it's controlling your behavior. Do you see what I'm saying? Desire turns into a demand. That's what Ken Sandy argues. David Pallison talks us about this third piece. If we, if we don't stop it there, it goes from desire to demand to now judge. I judge. I judge. <clears throat> not only do I have a desire that's unmet, I want something and I'm not getting it. Now I believe that I deserve something and I'm not getting it. Or I believe that I have to have it and I'm entitled to it and you're going to give it to me or else I'm demanding that of you. And if you still don't meet uh, sort of my requirements and give me what it is that I want, then I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you and I'm going to condemn you. I'm going to set myself up as judge over your life and I'm going to cast my judgment on you. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to judge your motives and your actions. Pallison, again, is helpful. He says, we judge others. We criticize, nitpick, nag, attack, condemn, because we literally play God. And this is heinous. The Bible says there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you when you judge? None other than a God wannabe. How many times have we been a God wannabe? And this we've become like the devil himself. We act exactly like the adversary who seeks to usurp God's throne and who acts as the accuser of the brethren. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms that we establish. When we see our fighting and quarreling this way, it's really quite horrifying, isn't it? It's not just a problem of me having desires, I want something and I'm not getting it. It's not just a problem of me wanting something and not getting it and now demanding it of you and not getting it and making that desire an idol of my heart. It now drives me to set myself up in God's place and and pretend that I can judge you. How do we know when we've moved into this phase? Well, those feelings of superiority begin to emerge right i'm right and you're wrong i'm the one righteous here you're the one who's the sinner i'm going to prove my court case and i'm going to judge you guilty and we're going to we're going to play out the whole trial right here and i'm going to show you how righteous i am and how wrong you are instead of giving people for room for independence and disagreement or failure We rigidly impose our expectations upon them, and we demand that they give allegiance to our idols. If they don't, we condemn them in our hearts. We condemn them with our words, and we go to battle. And then it goes from, I judge, to finally, I punish. It's really the last step, right? I demand, I mean, I desire, I demand, I judge, and now I'm going to punish you. I wanted it and you didn't give it to me. I demanded it. You still didn't give in and so I judged you guilty And now not only am I going to be the judge, but I'm going to be I'm going to be the enforcer of the law as well And I'm going to punish you for not doing what I wanted You see idols always demand sacrifices And so when other people fail to live up to our demands, when they don't do what we want our idols demand that they should then suffer and so we find ways to hurt and we find ways to punish so that they'll give us what we want. And that punishment can take all sorts of forms, can it? It could be overt anger. Fine. I'm going to let you know how angry I am. I'm going to go at it with you. Right here, right now. We lash out with hurtful words that are intended to do nothing other than inflict pain. That's all. We say things to harm. Oh, there are other ways that we do this punishment, right? We, if we don't do, do the outright frontal, then we do the other the other approach, which is we just withdraw from the relationship. We just withdraw. We respond with a sort of a subtle coolness. Withhold affection. Withhold physical contact. We walk around sad and gloomy. Maybe even we abandon the relationship altogether. That's my punishment for you not giving in to what I Or we can try to induce guilt or shame, right? We try those tactics. All of them are forms of punishment. You haven't given me what I want. You're the problem. I've judged you guilty, and now I'm going to punish you until you do what it is that I want you to do. When we begin to inflict pains on others, it is the surest sign that a desire has become an idol and it's ruling our hearts. And the problem is not the other person. The problem is me. The problem is me. God is not ruling my heart. An idol has ruled my heart. How do we summarize all this? There's one question at the end of the day when James asks, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Whenever you're involved in a conflict, big war, small skirmish, here's the one question that you have to ask of yourself. What do I want that I'm not getting? Husband and wife, the next time you're at odds and you're going at it, here's, here's, a, here's a great little, little technique. Why don't you push the pause button and each of you go look in the mirror and ask the question, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Or better yet, stop the fight and ask your own heart. What is it that she wants that she's not getting? What am I withholding that she wants? And why am I withholding it? Parents, kids, the next time you're doing battle in the house, Dad, why don't you stop and ask the question, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Has it been that long ago that uh, I had just come in from work and, and... my son was home and I just walked in the door and you know, he came at me and was asking me questions, wanted me to do something. As soon as I walked in the door, I didn't even put my stuff you know, down and shifted modes yet. And I, and I found myself quickly, you know, sort of snap at him, right? It was, it was wrong. It was wrong. Why did I do that? What caused that little skirmish? Well, I wanted something and I didn't get it. I wanted... I wanted five minutes of peace and quiet when I walked in the house to put my stuff down and to be able to shift gears before anybody came at me. That's what I wanted, but it wasn't what I got. But what I wanted quickly became a demand, and I quickly judged him as being out of order, and I punished him with a harsh word. You see how quickly this thing happens? What is it that I want that I'm not getting? And why do I think I deserve it? Why do I feel entitled to it? Do I have any biblical right to demand this of anyone? Listen, this is just the first root. I don't know if it's as painful to you as it is to me, but this is just the first root. It's hard for me to look in the mirror and admit that when I'm in conflict that I'm the problem. Is it hard for you? It's hard for me to admit when I look in the mirror that you know, at the end of the day, there's something ruling my heart and it's not God. It's some desire, something that I want, that I've I'm now demanding, that I've now feel entitled to. And I probably have no right to demand that. Listen if you're a Christian, you're called to be a peacemaker. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your life must be marked by peace. When I see people who are attached to the church of Jesus Christ and their life is full of conflict on all fronts, it is a living, walking contradiction. Their life is a testimony against their claim. You cannot be a believer who is walking in in intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ and be a person who is involved in conflict all the time. It cannot be. It cannot be. If that's you, you need to stop and look in the mirror and ask the question, what is going on in my heart? What is it that I want that I'm not getting? And why do I feel justified in demanding it and fighting for it? Has not God promised to give me everything that I need for life and godliness? Has God not promised to deliver into my life every single thing I need? Then what am I fighting for? What am I demanding? Why do I think I have to take matters into my own hands and try and go capture stuff for myself and fight other people to get it? The reason is because I'm a sinner. And I have within me the remnants of sin that corrupt my heart, that corrupt my thoughts, that corrupt my behaviors the blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed me from the penalty of my sin at the cross. And one day when I leave this world and I go to be with Him, one of the greatest joys of that very moment will be that in that moment He will redeem me from the very presence of sin altogether. But in between those two places, there's a remnant of sin that still hangs around inside of me. And it corrupts things about me. How I think and how I observe and how I make decisions. And there's a war that's going on on the inside that I have to do battle with every day. So do you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the reality is your life is going to be filled with conflict on every front because you have no ability to control that. You're living by the wisdom of the world You're pursuing the things that the world says you ought to pursue And the pursuit of those things will always drive you into conflict with other people And will always drive you into conflict inside yourself There's only one remedy for that Confess your sin before the Lord Jesus Christ Repent and turn from it Say to Him, Lord Jesus, You alone can save me Forgive my sins I submit my life to You transform me into your image so that I'm something other than what I've always been if you're a Christian here and your life has been marked by conflicts battles maybe even this morning on the way to church it happens on Sunday morning it's a great time for a good fight it really is so the kids know just you know how to do it right when you're trying to get out of the house What are you going to do? Bow your heads and close your eyes with me if you would. Don't think about, boy, I wish Susie was here to hear this sermon. I want you to take just a second and look in the mirror of your own life. And I want you to think about your most recent conflict. Your most recent conflict. And ask yourself the question, what did I want that I didn't get? that drove me into battle. And maybe it, that's a good place to start our confession and our repentance before the Lord. Maybe that looks something like this. God, I, there are things that I want, that I desire, and I let them get out of control. And so I fight and I demand other people do what I want. I want my husband to do this and he hasn't done it. I want my wife to do this and she didn't do it. I want my children to do that, and they didn't do it. And so I did this sinful thing. Lord, I confess that sin, and I repent it before you. Please help me, God. Please help me to wage war on the inside with these desires that go astray. Help me not to let my desires become idols that drive me to fight Help me to lay down my weapons right now and as soon as the service is over, go to that that person and ask for their forgiveness. Help me to stop demanding things for myself and to trust you to provide everything that I need. And when other people don't act the way I think they ought to, help me to run to you and to trust your sanctifying work in their lives on your time frame and not to assume your role in their life. Maybe that's what it looks like for you. However you need to respond to the Lord, you do so in your heart in these quiet moments and as we sing this next song. God, you help us. This is hard. This is painful. We don't like it, but we need it. Do your work in us, we pray for Christ's sake.